The reading this morning is from uh, Romans 6, uh, 1 through 14. What shall we say then? Are we to continue in sin that grace might increase? May it never be. How shall we who died to sin still live in it? Or do you not know that all of us who have been baptized into Christ Jesus have been baptized into his death? Therefore, we have been buried with him through baptism into death, in order that as Christ was raised from the dead through the glory of the Father, so we too might walk in newness of life. For if we have become united with him in the likeness of his death, certainly we shall be also in the likeness of his resurrection, knowing this, that our old self was crucified with him, that our body of sin might be done away with, that we should no longer be slaves to sin. For he who has died is freed from sin. Now if we have died with Christ, we believe that we shall also live with him, knowing that Christ, having been raised from the dead, is never to die again. Death no longer is master over him. For the death that he died, he died to sin once for all. But the life that he lives, he lives to God. Even so, consider yourselves to be dead to sin, but alive to God in Christ Jesus. Therefore, do not let sin reign in your mortal body that you should obey its lusts. And do not go on presenting the members of your body to sin as instruments of unrighteousness, but present yourselves to God as those alive from the dead, and your members as instruments of righteousness to God. For sin shall not be master over you, for you are not under law, but under grace. Thanks, Jim. That's uh, tremendous good news, isn't it? I can't wait to dig into this. Uh, let's open in a word of prayer. Um, Lord, thank you so much that uh, you have given us this technology where during a pandemic we can continue to meet. Lord, as uh, Dan was uh, teaching this morning in Sunday school, we mustn't forsake the assembling of ourselves together. And uh, Lord, you have given us the opportunity, the, the means to do that um, in the midst of uh, all that we're facing. So thank you for your grace in that way. And Lord, I want to um, lift up Glennis, our dear sister in Christ, as uh, she is uh, entering in her last days. Lord, would you give her a very special sense of your presence and your love with her, Lord, I pray that she would uh, have just numerous wonderful scriptures come to mind spontaneously. Uh, Lord, that as uh, your, your word would be real to her, your Holy Spirit would be applying them and uh, illuminating them. And Lord, I pray that um, as, uh, as she winds down the life that you've given her as that comes to an end, Lord, that it would be um, not a fearful thing for her, but Lord, a delightful thing that uh, to know that she is about to enter into her rest Lord, that she's entering into um, the reward of a life with Christ. Uh, but most importantly, Lord, most beautifully, as she's entering into your presence. To be absent from the body is to be present with the Lord. And so, uh, Lord, I pray that those wonderful things would be before her and would be drawing her uh, to you. And Lord, welcome her when she arrives. And uh, I pray that she would hear you say, well done, my good and faithful servant. And um, so, Lord, be good with her in these last days um, as she is, uh, is lingering, as, as it's taking time to go. Lord, uh, uh, we know that she is with you even now. So, Lord, would you be with her? And, Father, along similar lines, I thank you so much 
for um, Bob Kempel's successful eye surgery for the removal of cataracts. And, and Lord, um, he is just dazzled at how clearly he can see now. And Lord, what a beautiful picture of, of our salvation is uh, once I was blind, but now I see. And to see the world as it really is, uh, Lord, I thank you that uh, Bob is, is giving you credit for that and, um, and praising you for what you've done in his life. And uh, as we were talking, we look forward to when Bob will be able, with those renewed eyes, to look at our congregation and our facility again. So, Lord, we pray that you would be um, drawing this pandemic down, that it would be slowing and fading. And, Lord, that we would be uh, able to worship corporately together again very soon. So have mercy on us in those things. Lord, as we turn now to your word, uh, I pray that you would open our eyes, that you would uh, clear the fog from our sight, and Lord, that we would see gospel truths that are just amazing and beautiful. Lord, that through the power of your spirit, we'd see them with dazzling clarity and brightness. And to that end, Lord, would you sanctify my lips, and may I teach clearly what your word has to say and bring you great glory not for myself, but Lord, for the benefit of your church. And so be with us now as we enter into a time of study. And we ask this in Christ's name. Amen. So um, we're in chapter six. And like last week, I kind of backed up and covered the end and then went back into it. I'm doing a similar thing now um, because uh, this really is a flow of thought and there's a lot of uh, back and forth. But also because I think what we're going to cover, we have to look at those first few verses uh, to set us up. So the, the topic that we're going to learn today, the thing that we're going to learn is union with Christ. And um, as we dig into it, you'll see it is an enormous doctrine, a beautiful doctrine, and something that we can easily forget. So uh, to that end, the way we're going to do this is we'll look at the first four verses about the reality of the union with Christ, the reality of our union with Christ. And then verses five through nine, we'll look at the effects of that union. So what happens to us in that union in, with Christ? That's also where I'll stop and really elaborate the doctrine a little bit first. And then finally, we'll come to the last four verses, 10 through 14, and we'll see how Paul applies the doctrine of our union with Christ. It'll be the application of the, the, the doctrine. So uh, the reality of our union with Christ uh, this is the first four verses. What shall we say then? Are we to continue in sin that grace may abound? By no means. How can we who have died to sin still live in it? Do you not know that all of us who've been baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death? We were buried, therefore, with him in baptism into death in order that, just as Jesus was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we too might walk in newness of life. And so last week when we looked at that, I, I explained that when it comes to that issue of, um, of preaching grace, when you talk about the grace of God, a, a perfectly natural response you can get is, well, if that's true, then I can live any way I want. That if God loves me and it doesn't have anything to do with how good or bad I am, that's just fine. I'll, I'll you know, take the grace and then go live any way I want. Um, that's because the question is often asked too early in the discussion. Um, that's, that's the idea that grace doesn't do anything. Now, the context that we've been talking about this grace in has been justification by faith alone. And um, if what we mean by justification by faith alone is God takes a foreign righteousness, not our righteousness. He takes the righteousness of God, Jesus' righteousness, and he applies it to us. And in a legal, 
judicial sense, he announces us to be righteous, not because of anything we've done, simply because we're trusting in that, in that promise that he would do that. Um, so that's where that concept of, well, if my behavior doesn't matter, then I can just continue to sin. And this is even a little bit more nuanced of an argument because what we said a couple of weeks ago was that God's grace shows his glory. It demonstrates how, how majestic and wonderful he is. So the argument here is, well, should we continue to sin? Because if grace makes God look good and grace is extended to us when we sin, then we sin more and God looks even better. Um, and, and Paul stops the argument and he says, you're getting half of it. You haven't got the whole thing. Um, by no means, God forbid, no way. Uh, how can we who have died to sin still live in it? So what he's done is he's explained uh, what justification by faith alone is. And now he's going to the results of that. Um, we, we can speak about the, 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 these events in logical terms. Chronologically, on a stopwatch, they may all happen together, but logically there's a progress that's going on, and that's what Paul's working through. So first of all, we are justified by grace, um, by, by faith. Um, we are declared to be righteous. Now we can have a relationship with God because we're not sinners alienated from him. Um, if you remember in, when we were going through Exodus, when Israel built the golden calf, and sinned against God, Moses came down and dealt with it. When Moses returned, God made him an offer. He said, here's what I'll do. Um, I will send my angel before you, and you guys go into the promised land, and we'll wipe it out, and you can settle, but I'm not going to go in the midst of you, because if I do, I'd wipe you out. Um, that's the relationship of God to sin. So for us, God doesn't want to have that relationship of distance. He wants to be with us, and so he justifies us by faith, so that he can extend grace to us and work in our lives. And so that's why Paul says, how can we who have died to sin still live in it? Now, we'll un understand that statement more as we go through the rest of the verses today, but that's where he goes. The next thing that he says is he talks about baptism. Uh, we've been baptized into Jesus. We were baptized into his death. And last week, what I said is there's a couple of different things that people understand about baptism. Um, it still amazes me that the two rites that every type of Christian believes in is Lord's Supper and uh, baptism, and yet it's those two rites that divide all of us. Um, some people believe you baptize babies, some people you believe you baptize only believers. So they can't really function together because they aren't going to agree on that. What he's talking about here when he says baptism, there's a few approaches to that. One of them I mentioned last week real briefly was sacramentalism. And what sacramentalism says is what this verse says is, is actually what happens in baptism. So when you are baptized, Adam's sin is washed away from you. You are born again. So it's baptismal regeneration. You are now in the church and you're walking with Christ in life. That's, that's a sacramental view of baptism. Um, Last week, I pointed out there were a few problems with that. Um, notably, in Acts chapter 4, Samaritans were baptized and didn't receive the Spirit. So baptized, baptism didn't work in that case until Paul came, or Peter came and laid his hands on them. The other example was Cornelius in Acts uh, chapter 9, where Peter is still preaching the gospel to them, and the Holy Spirit falls on them. So in that case, baptism wasn't necessary. So that shows there are some problems with a sacramental view. Well, the other opposite end of that, then, is what's called the memorialist view. 
And uh, this is uh, one that you've probably heard quite a bit. Uh, baptism is, a, is our pronouncement of faith. It is us saying that we have trusted in, in the Lord in a public setting. Um, that's not exactly wrong, but it's not exactly complete either. Um, because when you look at the Bible verses that talk about baptism, it doesn't talk about what we do. It talks about what God does. So I said, if we look at the text and we understand this a little bit more carefully, what we'll see is baptism is actually an, inter an external uh, uh, act of, uh, in our physical reality that shows something that has actually happened in our spiritual reality. So we are justified by faith and therefore we are included in Christ. And then we do the baptism not to, not only to say, I have trusted in Christ, but to show what that means. And uh, the parallel I like to draw is when we look at communion, uh, remember we should be doing communion this Sunday, by the way, but uh, when we do communion, we always read from First uh, Corinthians chapter 11. And the way Paul explains it there, he says, every time you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. And so my take on that is when we have communion, it's a gospel proclamation in physical form. It is bread broken for uh, us. It is his blood poured out for us. So it's a, it's a physical explanation of a gospel truth. And baptism is a similar thing. It's a gospel proclamation in physical form. Um, we are immersed into Christ and we rise to new life uh, through him. So that's what I mean when I said this section is about the reality of the union with Christ, is um, the, the baptism is a physical explanation. It demonstrates it externally what has gone on in reality. God gives us something because we exist in a physical uh, existence. Um, he gives us a physical manifestation of that, that event. He gives us something to remember it. So the first thing is that this union with Christ is real. It actually happened. It, it's something that we, um, we have done or it's something that's been done to us. Um, so where I want to look at next is uh, verses five through nine, the effects of the union with Christ. And um, before we look at the verses, um, we'll, we'll get to those in a minute. What I'd like to do is do a real brief sketch of what do we mean by union with Christ? What is that doctrine all about? Um, it, it's interesting because during the week I was working on this and I couldn't quite nail down exactly what I was going to do with this text. And then all of a sudden union with Christ came up. And when I started looking into it, I went, oh yeah, of course. Um, if you're not familiar with the doctrine, once you see it, you'll find it everywhere. Um, I heard one commentator say that Paul uses the term in Christ, in him, in whom, speaking of Jesus, about 90 times in his epistles. He said, Paul never called Christians Christians. Um, his main way of identifying people who are Christians was those who are in Christ. Uh, so it's, it's that pervasive. And so what do we mean by it then? What are we talking about? Well, I'm going to give kind of a, a brief sketch of what it's like. And uh, what I'm doing here is, is um, there's a book by a man named John Murray, uh, it's called Redemption Accomplished and Applied. And uh, chapter nine in that book is about union with Christ. And so I'm taking something that he wrote in there that I thought was really helpful and kind of riffing on it and expanding it a little bit. So hopefully this will be helpful for us to understand what do we mean by union with Christ. Um, first of all, uh, uh, Murray says, on the highest level of being, 
it, that is union with Christ, is compared to the union which exists between the persons of the Trinity in the Godhead. This is staggering, but it is the case. And so he quotes John chapter 17. And in John 17, Jesus says that they may be one just as you, Father, are in me and I in you, that they may also be in us, so that the world may believe that you have sent me. The glory that you've given me, I have given them, that they may be one as we are one, I in them and you in me, that they may become perfectly one, so that the world may know that you have sent me and loved them, even as you've loved me. So the, the highest picture of the unity that we have with Jesus Christ is the unity that exists in the, in the Trinity. Now, that doesn't mean we get inserted into the Trinity. That's a picture. But that's how lofty, how, how incredibly high that, that concept can be. Murray goes on and he says, on the lowest level, it is compared to the relation that exists between the stones of a building and the chief cornerstone. And there he cites Ephesians 2, 19 through 22. So then you are no longer strangers and aliens, but you are fellow heirs with the saints and members of the household of God, built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone, in whom the whole structure being joined together grows into a holy temple in the Lord. In him you also are being built together into a dwelling place for God by the Spirit. In him you are being built together. So it is that union between us and Jesus at, at its highest pictured in the union in the Trinity at its most earthly, uh, the chief cornerstone of a building. And so that's kind of the, the, the height and uh, depth of it. Um, what about the time of it, the timing of it? Well, in one sense, our union with Christ is actually eternal. Um, we have to be careful with this because there's some heresy that comes from that idea, but um, where we, what we're talking about, this eternality of, of us in Christ, uh, comes from Ephesians 1, 3 and 4. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places, even as he chose us in him before the foundations of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before him. So we were chosen in Christ from the foundations of the world before the world existed before you existed, before there was a universe, you were already chosen in Christ. So in, in one sense, it is an eternal thing that we're in Christ. Um, and um, in that very same epistle, uh, that, that is Ephesians, uh, Paul goes on to show us that it is also a temporal thing. Our, our being placed in Christ actually takes place in space and time. And so uh, in chapter 2, verse 12, Paul says, remember that you are at that time separated from Christ, alienated from the commonwealth of Israel and strangers to the covenants of the promise, having no hope and without God in the world. So the people he just said, you were chosen in Christ before the foundation of the world. He now says, but at this time you were alienated from Christ. You were separated from him. So there's a sense in which we're in Christ from eternity because God has purposed in Jesus to save us. And yet there's a period of time when we're not in Christ and we must come to him. And so I think those two truths really come together in 2 Timothy 1, 8 and 9. Um, what he says there is, God who saved us and called us. 
So God saved us. We were not saved and he saved us. We were not called and he called us. God who saved us and called us to a holy calling, not because of our works, but because of his own purpose and grace has given us in Christ Jesus, uh, which he gave us in Christ Jesus before the ages began. So there was this time when you were not saved and you were not called, but there was a grace that was in Christ before the ages began. Um, so that's that, that it is, but it isn't kind of thing. Um, another aspect of our union with Christ is that it's a mutual union. Um, it, it, and here's what I mean by that. In John 15, 5, Jesus says, whoever abides in me and I in him, he it is that bears much fruit, for apart from me, you can do nothing. So whoever abides in me and I in him, it's that mutual infilling. Um, this is not just a one-way deal. This is something much more elaborate and, and detailed. Um, and then finally, what, what I'd like to point to is that um, Murray points out that uh, this, this uh, union with Christ is also what he calls a spiritual thing. And he warns us that word spiritual uh, gets really abused quite a bit. We don't really understand what it means. In biblical context, when we say spiritual, we mean it is done by the Spirit. So here's what he says, is he says that this, this indwelling of uh, Christ with us is Christ dwells in us if his spirit dwells in us, and he dwells in us by his spirit. So it's kind of that mutual thing, but it's, it's done through the spirit. And where he gets that is Romans chapter 8, verse 9. You, however, are not in the flesh, but in the spirit, if in fact the spirit of God dwells in you. Anyone who does not have the spirit of Christ does not belong to him. So that's how we are in Christ is through his spirit, because where's Jesus right now? He's in heaven, seated at the right hand of glory. So he's not in us. Um, besides, he still has a human form. He can't be in us because he's physical um, as well as spiritual. So what he's done is he has sent his spirit, and in sending his spirit, he now dwells in us. So that's the kind of broad scope of, um, of Christ in us, what that means. Uh, it, it, uh, if it seems a little fuzzy right now, it's because another aspect is that it's mysterious. Um, and that doesn't mean hard to understand because, you know, it's puzzling. It's, it's a mystery that has been hidden for ages. So um, what may help us is instead of trying to nail down all of that because it's huge, uh, there are a lot of books written on union with Christ some of them have been, or some of them are helpful and good. Some of them are a little confusing. But um, if that's hard to understand at this point, uh, it's because it covers so many aspects of, of Christianity. Let's narrow that down. Let's take a look at what Paul does with it here in uh, Romans 6 and see if that helps us at all. So in the next section, the, um, this, this next part of the, um, the, per, the section here, Paul says, for if we have been united with him in a death like his, we shall certainly be united with him in a resurrection like his. You know that our old self was crucified with him in order that the body of sin might be brought to nothing, so that we would no longer be enslaved to sin. For one who has died has been set free from sin. Now, if we have died with Christ, we believe that we will also live with him. We know that Christ, being raised from the dead, will no longer die again. Death has no, no longer has dominion over him. 
For the death he died, he died to sin once for all. But the life he lives, he lives to God. So you must consider yourselves dead to sin and alive to God in Christ Jesus. So this is the application that he is, is going for here. What he's saying is, is that in order for Jesus to be united with us, um, that was the plan from eternity. Remember, we were chosen in him before the universe ever began. In order for him to accomplish that, he had to become like us so that we could become like him. And so what, what uh, he's talking about here is, is Jesus, who eternally existed as God the Son. He, he was always spirit. Um, according to what the Trinity had purposed in creation, he added to himself human nature. And when we say human nature, we don't mean he put on a skin suit. We mean he added to himself a physical body. He added to himself a human mind. He added to himself a human will. He added to himself human emotions, um, but without sin. So why would the eternally begotten Son of God, who is dwelling in perfection, in, in joy with the Father, in perpetual love, in, in what we call the happiness of God, why would he add those things to himself? These limitations, they're less than who he is. Well, Hebrews 2 explains that, 14 through 16. Since therefore the children share in flesh and blood, he himself likewise partook of the same things, that through death he might destroy the one who has the power of death, that is the devil, and deliver all of those who through fear of death were subject to lifelong slavery. For surely it's not angels that he helps, but he helps the offspring of Abraham. So why did the eternal uh, God take on human nature? So that he could participate in death. Why would he do that? So that he could liberate us from the, hell, the hold that death has over us. He could break that chain. He could, he could remove that, and he could help the offspring of Abraham. So that's what it means for him to be united to us and for us to be united to him, is he came so that we could die with him. He died so that we could rise with him. And that's, that's the beauty of where Paul goes with this is, um, remember, we were originally under Adam. Remember the, first part, or, uh, the second part of chapter 5? In Adam, what we inherited, as we're in Adam, we inherit sin. Therefore, we inherit death. Therefore, we inherit condemnation. That was what we had in Adam. But as now we come to be in Christ, he is not just saying, well, I'll just make all that go away. I'll just wave my hands and it'll disappear. He enters into that same situation and he dies the death that we should have died. He, he, is, he is killed the way that we should have been killed. Why did he die in a, a horrible um, criminal's death? Because we're criminals and we deserved it. He did not. That's what it means for him to be united with us. Um, he, he suffers the same weaknesses that we do except where we fall into sin, he doesn't. And that's the beauty of that, is now that he's done that, he's died the death that we deserved, he's also risen to life that we don't deserve. And as we're in him, as he's identified with us and we're identified with him, what Paul is telling us is, if we are with him in his death, we shall certainly be reunited with him with a resurrection like his. That was the purpose of union with Christ, is so that he could bring us to life. 
he rises again, never to die again. He gives us new life so that we can walk with him. So uh, verses 10 and 11 are a little bit confusing because um, it says in verse 10, for the death he died, he died to sin. And what can that mean? And, and as I was reading through the commentaries, everybody's like, gosh, that's confusing. Um, Jesus didn't die because of his own sin, but he did die to sin in a certain way. Um, so I think what's helpful is if you take 10 and, 10 and 11 together, what you'll see is there's some parallels there. And if we keep in mind the union with Christ and Christ's union with us, the parallels, I think, help make sense. Um, in verse 10, Christ died to sin. In verse 11, we died to sin. We must consider ourselves dead to sin. In verse 10, Jesus now lives to God. Verse 11, so we are alive to God in Jesus Christ. And so I think that's the parallel that he's drawing. But what does it mean that Jesus died to sin? What could that possibly mean? Well, in one sense, Jesus did die to sin, not his own, but he died to ours. Second Corinthians 5.21, for our sake, he made him to be sin who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. So Jesus did, in a sense, die to sin, but it was dying to our sin. It was what canceled our sin. He bore our sin and he died in our place. Um, that's the power of strength of the uh, union with Christ. So that's how he, he goes on to, um, to show us the effects of that union. The effects are Jesus died and so we have died. We've been liberated because he has come and he's, he's died in our place. So where he goes in the last section, the last four verses, is he's going to show us how to apply that truth. What are we supposed to do with this, this truth which we can't quite see, which is why we have baptism, so that we can enact it and kind of watch what happens. Um, how do you apply a, a truth that is so broad and so great? Um, the last four verses tells us, this is the application. Let not sin therefore reign in your mortal body to make you obey its passions. Do not present your members to sin as instruments for unrighteousness, but present yourselves to God as those who have been brought from death to life and your members to God as instruments of, for righteousness. For sin will have no dominion over you since you are no longer under law, but grace. So where I say, the reason I say that this is where he applies it is because um, the word consider in verse 11 and the word reign in verse 12 are the first time that Paul has used in an imperative in the, God, in the book of Romans. And uh, an imperative is a direction, you must do this. Um, these are the first times that he has directed to us an imperative. So consider that for a moment. What has he told us so far? He's told us that we are lost in sin, that we are hopeless, that none is righteous, no, not one, but that we will be justified by faith in Christ, and that in justification, we die to sin, we live to, uh, to uh, God. And so now he says, this is what you must do with it. Consider and, and, um, and don't let sin reign. Consider yourselves uh, dead to sin, and don't let sin reign in your bodies. That, that's the application. So where does he go with this? Don't present your members as, to sin as instruments for unrighteousness. Um, he's talking about our physical body. 
to not present our physical body in a way that would be in, uh, instruments for unrighteousness, to do the, uh, the things that we have already talked about the Gentiles doing, uh, worshiping false things, sexual perversity, all of that. Don't present your body for that, but present yourselves to God. Um, so where he goes in the end with that is he says, for sin will have no domain, uh, dominion over you. Um, we're no longer under sin. We've died with Christ. We've been delivered since you are no longer under law, but under grace. Now, that phrase at the end has been um, tweaked and um, taken out of context and perverted to mean things like, well, Christians can do whatever they want. It won't matter because we're under grace. We're not under law. Um, or um, we're not under law, so the whole old covenant has nothing to do with us. Um, just it's all gone. We're under grace. It's, it's a brand new thing. I think if we keep it in context, what he's saying is that idea of law. And remember what law got us? Do you remember where law took us? Um, if we go all the way back to the Garden of Eden, um, Adam was created and the Garden of, Cre uh, the Garden of Eden was created and God put a tree in the garden and told Adam, don't eat from that. That was the law. That was law in the garden. And could law deliver Adam? No. He, he, he ate from it and he fell. So he couldn't even keep that law. What law did, law brought sin and it brought death and, and, and condemnation. And that's what law can do. And so a couple of weeks ago, we said, well, why did God bring the law in? And what was the point of that? Was it to restrain sin? No, actually it was the opposite. It was to make sin more sinful. So when Paul says here, you're not under law, what he's saying is that law that, that is what was supposed to be controlling and sustaining and, and directing you, that's gone. We're under grace. How could we be under grace and not under law? Because we're in Christ. And so in Jesus, we have received grace, but we've also received a new heart. We've, we've been set free from sin. Now, how can you sin? Well, you don't need law if you're not going to sin. We've been set free from that. And so where we need to be going is towards God's grace and counting on that. So this is the idea that, that um, since we're in Christ and we're under grace, not under law, we can do things like we can approach the Father in prayer. And when Jesus says, pray in my name, what he's saying essentially is, clothe yourself in me and approach the Father as if it was me approaching the Father, not you. So if you've had a particularly bad week and uh, sin has been yapping at your heels and discontent is brewing in your heart and, and you didn't feel like doing Bible study on Tuesday and all of that, and you think, well, I need to sit down, I need to spend some time with God, but I'm not worthy. Of course you're not worthy. That, that's the whole point. Of course you're not worthy, but his son is infinitely worthy. And so what you're called to do, what this union with Christ is trying to teach us is wrap yourself in the son and go in and talk to the father. And he will accept you. He will talk to you. He will deal with you as if he was dealing with Jesus. And, and it doesn't feel like it. It feels like, well, I'm such a mess up. I, I, you know, I had a bad week or whatever it was. That doesn't matter. Or if you're feeling particularly proud because you had a great week, um, you need to repent of your pride too. But remember that you're clothed in Christ. You are in Christ. And so as you approach the Father, you can approach him believing 
that he is hearing his son because that's how he's approaching you. That's how he's looking to you. That's why this whole thing started back at uh, verse four is we have been raised with Christ from the dead by the glory of the father that we too might walk in newness of life. That's that union with Christ. We too might walk in newness of life. Um, so here's the thing now. Does this mean, since it says sin will have no dominion over you, does that mean that we are sinless now? Um, does that mean we will never sin uh, again after we've been um, justified by God's grace? Um, I, th I think there's a, a, a problem with that approach. Uh, there's some scriptures that talk about us sinning. Um, if we sin, we have an advocate with the Father. Um, also, I think what we're looking at here, when we, if we think that we're completely freed from sin, is we're looking at the end state, and that's not what's being promised here. So um, St. Augustine had said that there were four states to human, humanity. Um, before the fall, humankind was able to not sin. So it was possible for Adam to not sin because he didn't until he ate from the tree. But after the fall, sin and death and condemnation come into the world. Now mankind is not able to not sin. It's just now the default setting is we are sinning. But after we're justified by faith, after we come to trust in Jesus Christ, we are now able to not sin. And I think that's what this is talking about, is, is he's got to tell us, don't, don't let your body be used for sinful measures. He's, it, it, he tells us that because it's possible. We can fight sin and have victory over it. We can resist, and, and we are not slaves to that. So that's that third state where it's possible for us to not sin. But the good news is, and this is what we're hoping for in the resurrection, where this physical body now is made new, is the final state is we're not able to sin. And, and that's what we're looking forward to but that's in the new heavens and the new earth. Where we're at now is in stage three. Uh, we have been saved, we've been justified, and now we're able to not sin. But we're able to sin too. And so the, the good news is, Paul doesn't give us these imperatives and tell us, now, stop sinning, just stop doing it. He, he gives it to us in the context of how can you possibly do that? Well, he's told us, you are united with Christ. Jesus died so that sin would be broken in your life. So the battle you're fighting against the sin that's calling your name, you're fighting against a broken enemy. You're fighting against an enemy who is already vanquished. He hasn't been cast out yet. That will be at the, the end when Jesus judges everybody and sin and death and hell go into the lake of fire. But the enemy has now been beaten. And so if you will call on that union you have with Christ, if you will remind yourself of these things, if you will um, consider your, your body dead to sin, you can have victory over those things. You can walk in newness of life. And that's, that's the promise that we're given is it's, it is possible because you have been liberated. Um, so uh, the, the idea that we can stop sitting totally um, it can it, it can sound appealing, but it can also be uh, debilitating. Um, my grandfather years ago, um, I remember talking to him on the phone, and he was just distraught that he was not sanctified. He was a member of the Church of the Nazarene who believe in perfectionism, that you can get to a certain point in your Christian life where you stop sinning. 
And he didn't find that comforting. He found it terrifying. Now, you have to understand who my grandfather was. My grandfather was a Marine in World War II. My, my grandfather fought at Guadalcanal. My father was a, a building contractor. He was a farmer. He was not a pushover kind of guy. I think that is the only time I can ever remember seeing my grandfather frightened of anything. And so the, the promise being held out to him is you can stop sinning. And he knew he wasn't. Um, that can be debilitating. But what could be helpful in that situation is to say, Grandpa, you're still sinning, but you have the tools at your disposal to win that battle. You have the opportunity. You have what is available to you is the chains are broken. The, 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 um, the, the, the final state may not be here, but, but you have been set free. You're a new creature in Christ. And so you can war against those sins and not have to worry about missing one or losing one battle and the whole thing's over. But instead, you can say, I'm going to continue this fight until we get to glory. And in glory, when sin is defeated and gone and, and cast into a lake of fire, then we don't have to worry about it anymore. Now, then it's gone. What we get now is a taste of that. It is the promise of the hope of what is coming. And where do we get it? We get it in Jesus Christ. God, when he created the universe, he created it in such a way that he would have creatures who could worship him freely and openly. But he knew that that entailed a possibility of rebellion. And, and so even from the beginning, before he ever created a thing, he had already a plan to deal with that sin, to deal with that rebellion, knowing that it would come. That's why I believe um, in Genesis 1, it's, God says the world was very good. It wasn't perfect. Sin had to be drawn out. Death had to arrive and be eradicated. And the plan from the foundation of the world onward was that the Son would do that. And so when we look to the future and we say that's what we're hoping for, that was the eternal plan from beginning to end. So that's what we can be reaching for. So that's why he says you walk in newness of life. It's possible because of Jesus. That's why he says sin has no dominion over you. You are not under law, but under grace. Is This has been the plan from the beginning, and we will make it in the end. We'll make it there. Um, that's the hope that he gives us in this, is to say, well, should we continue to sin that grace may abound? Is that okay? No, it, it's absolutely not, because what you're thinking is, Justification by faith alone is nothing more than a legal declaration. It is a legal declaration, but it's not the end. What comes from justification, the reason that God justifies you, is so that you would be in Christ, dead to sin and alive to righteousness, so that you can walk with a sense of, a hope for the joy that we have in him. So that's, that's the, the way he goes, is he's not going to just tell us, now go out and try real hard. Jesus has come, he's died, now try real hard. He's, he's giving us the, the equipment we need to fight that battle, to walk with him in righteousness, to walk in newness of life. And so that's the hope that we have. We're not done with, with the wrestling through that. We've got some more to work through in uh, the rest of chapter uh, six and chapter seven. Uh, but we've got now the batteries. Uh, I like to call it preaching with batteries. Um, not just go do it, here's how. Here's the, here's the, the uh, power to fight that. So that's, that's where we're going to go in chapter 6 and chapter 7. Let's close in a word of prayer. Lord, would you sink into the hearts and minds and souls of all of us the reality that we have died with Christ, 
died with him and that the death that we died, we died to sin, we died to Adam. We are dead to what Adam represented. And now through resurrection, through life out of death, Lord, we are raised to the new life that we have in Christ. We died to our old self. We live to our new self. The old man is gone. The new man has come. And Lord, that new man is not under the domain of sin. Uh, but Lord, at the same time, we recognize that the physical body we're carrying around hasn't changed a whit. It, it is the same as it was before. And so, Lord, we look forward to the real resurrection, the full resurrection when this body is made new. But in the meantime, we have the promise of walking in newness of life. And Lord, would you make that a reality in us? Lord, bring that about. We ask in Christ's name. Amen.